Hello. Welcome to another episode of Explodeview. I'm Craig Makowitz. When you visualize what a car looks like, what image pops in your head? What you visualize is probably unique, but we all have a general conception of what words like car or boat symbolize. This works in our favor too because it's the basis for the game Pictionary, that game where your friends question why a stick figure was the best thing your art education could muster. If you ask me to go for a boat ride, I show up to the dock and you hand me a pair of floating buoyant shoes that allow me to walk on water, I'd be both ecstatic but also wonder if you understood what the definition of a boat was. So there is a transition point. Like at what point does red become orange? And at what point the volume of your music is just too loud? Playing with the edge of a transition point is something our next guest does incredibly well. So today on Explodeview, we're going to be speaking with a designer who has flipped the narrative of the ordinary and expected on its head. His name is Joey Reuter, a designer who in his own words pushes the boundaries of the norm to transform everyday objects into products that are as useful as they are jaw-dropping. His vehicles look nothing like you'd expect them to, and if you aren't driving right now, I'd encourage you to jump online and take a look at the reboot buggy and then come right back. Some of his vehicles are currently on display at the Peterson Automotive Museum and the San Francisco Museum of Crafts and Design. Check them out virtually or when it's safe to do so. Our explodative topic today is liminality, and if your first thought is like mine, you're asking what is the definition of liminality? A hint is that it has to do with transitions. Joey will also talk to us about why the first moment counts when presenting new ideas to clients and why it's so important for designers to find their own aesthetic. I'm excited to have this design philosophy chat with Joey, so let's jump in. Hey, Joey. Great to have you on the show today. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this will be fun. When we first spoke, you mentioned that the topic you wanted to talk about was liminality, and I had no clue what, what the definition of liminality was. So could you just uh, just give a dis- definition of what, what it means? I mean, there's lots of people with different definitions of it, but my interpretation is the liminal is the space in between. So we're in liminal spaces all the time, whether you're leaving one room and entering another, it's that transition between the two. We're in liminal times, it can be space, time, or in some cases, you know, actual artifacts. Hmm. So so there's a kind of a before that middle point, which is that transition, and then the end or wherever you end up. Yeah, but the liminal side speaks that you're not really ever there in a way. So I'm, hmm. I like the liminal space that you're in, and it's the space you're in most of the time. So I'm, I'm curious how that applies to design. So when you think about liminal space and that, that space in between, how does that apply to design and, and how do you use that in your designs? Yeah, it's, I guess it's complicated, but simple terms, I would say you approach objects that I've created or other designers have created, and that approach can shift your mind one way or another. So as you walk up to a car or walk up to a new building or an entryway, you're having feelings kind of rushing through your body. So those transform your the way you're going to be perceived as you walk through that, and then hopefully those are good transformations and you arrive in a pleasant state, sometimes buildings change that or or thresholds can alter that. So if you have to duck in some cultures to come through, you know, you're changing your physical posture as well as your visual posture around you. Um, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm excited about those in between spaces, the liminal spaces that can 
get you ready for the design that's presented to you. It's, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that you reminded me of when you said ducking before you enter into space was Andrew Carnegie's mansion, the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York. There's a office and supposedly the doorway into the office is, is lowered. And that way, guests had to duck before they came into the room. And the story goes, Andrew Carnegie wanted them to bow to him. And it was this kind of sub, subconscious concept, which I, I always wondered if that was accurate. So if any listeners actually know, shoot us a message. I'm very curious. But it always struck me because it, it caused a physical motion when you entered into a space. And it kind of set a perception. Um, and it was all subconscious. Yeah. Um, physiologically, I think it, it does something to us. Um, I've designed lots of contract furniture installations and products for in those categories. And I, I try these things even within personal workspaces. So the views you see out, how you enter a space, how you get in and out of even open planned offices. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's tricks or it's just, it's nuances to help somebody have a better day, hopefully. I, I think about the Roman pantheon and, and go there. You're, you want to see the giant dome and the Oculus, but before you enter, there is a portico that it's like a four by six grid of these giant columns. And you have to walk through those first before you get into the dome. And, and, you know, the designers, the architects could have easily just put a door there uh, to enter into that space. But there's a reason why yeah, that yeah. grid exists, that, that transition space exists. I think that's what we're trying to get to the crux of is what's the importance of that um, movement through that threshold into the next and, and why should that be celebrated? Yeah, I think it's in the space that we're in most of our lives, you know, and if we can, you know, work on that a bit more, it's um, going to be better for everybody. If you have a home and you park in the garage and then sift through some trash on the way through your garage door into your house, that transition from your car inside your home is terrible. Like we've designed the home differently the front doors more inviting all that kind of stuff so mm-hmm. we've we've shifted that liminal space it's that we're using it wrong in the wrong sense so mm-hmm. i'm trying to get back to like what are those triggers and postures that really impact how we are presented in the world and then reinforce good design through that everything can be designed whether and i, I think you can design somebody's train of thought to receive something either easier or more sensibly or is just being more invited to it. Yeah. Conversely though, we can, we can shift that, you know, differently and, you know, maybe make somebody not want to stay in a space very long because we don't want them to be there long um, or keep people moving through. So you can design those aspects as well. I'm trying to design spaces and furniture specifically to, you know, shift your mind into a better place so you can be more productive and more creative. Uh, where do you see liminality existing in the everyday life? Um, so in your everyday life, if there's a brand or companies that are using that concept of liminality where they're really speaking to that transition point, uh, where, where do you see companies actually doing that successfully? And, and where do you take inspiration from? Oh, man. Um you know, an example that quickly popped in my mind is like a ride at Disney World is mm. a ride and that's wonderful and it's great to be on it. But the line 
to the ride is a liminal space. And they've created a culture around activity in the lines that is pretty impressive. So, mm-hmm. and airports are doing that. So as you, you know, your, your destination is somewhere else, but that liminal space between your house and the new destination is quite the journey. So they're touching on different points to make that a better experience. Oftentimes it's worse because of the way, you know, things fall out, but yeah, yeah, I don't don't think we think about it as much as we should. In those two instances, it's, it's pretty clear, you know, what you have to go through and you're in this like waiting room scenario, but it's other just slight nuances in the world that I don't think we allow ourselves the, the freedom to go there or spend money on those in between spaces um, or in between times that, that we have right now, it's just filled up with Instagram and whatever you're going to fiddle through on your phone, you know, on the ride. Um, mm. So we've consumed that liminal space with mind numbing, just more activity. So it's just, it's just overwhelming. I, I wonder, do you, do you also think there's this idea of liminality being applied to the digital space too? Cause I, you know, there's that transition when you turn on Netflix, they have their, you know, the sound effect, the boom, and then you have entrance into various digital experiences. I'm curious if that's also in your mind, part of that liminality where you're transitioning somebody from whatever they're doing to this kind of uh, experience that they'd, they'd like to have kind of your description of the Disney ride. Yeah, the you know, I think all those noises, triggers, sounds, you know, smell, they all set us and get us ready for something to anticipate. The faster download speeds, all that stuff just shortens that time in between, which it's it's a little bit saddening because we, we're just speeding everything up even more. Everything's like a dual task, like a car ride isn't just a ride. It's, oh, I can listen to a podcast. no. I mean, you should listen to this in your car, but um, <laughs> we're always trying to do a task. So the, the Netflix right. example is pretty great. And you, you nestle in, you turn it on and you hear the noise and then boom, it's there. It's presented to you and you sift through. I wonder if it was, you know, we're all looking to relax maybe when we do that kind of stuff. So maybe Netflix could play with that and make that pause a little longer or I'm sure neuroscientists have developed the, the certain amount of time already <laughs> yeah. that they can grab our the attention. amount of time we can handle. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like that. Um, the ability to maybe test that, you know, and see like, could you just sit still and just watch this sun go down for 15 seconds, you know, before you're bombarded with every new, you know, series that they want you to watch. I, I thought initially when you talked about liminality, the first thing that popped in my head was the Seinfeld skit uh, that, you know, we always want to go, I'm going to botch it completely. <laughs> but uh, there's that Seinfeld skit where he talks about one, everybody wants to go out. Everybody's always talking about going out. But then once we go out, we just got to get home. So it's yeah, yeah. always looking for that transition into the next space or this next moment you're planning that next thing and you're planning once you're there to go to the next thing it's always this transition this movement and i like what you're saying it's kind of taking that pause in that moment of transition and 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 living with with that yeah i think those are maybe bigger realms like in the design physical design world you know i apply it more 
specifically to like a one second transition between in and out of an office, you know, here or there type things. Right. Just because I want, I mean, I'm in the business of making physical objects. I'm not much of a digital designer and social designer, I guess. Your, your designs are so drastically different. And in my mind, there, there are almost arguments that there's another way. It's like a visual argument that there's another way to do something. When, when you see your reboot buggy, for instance, when I saw it for the first time ripping around Silver Lake Sand Dunes, and for anybody who's not or doesn't live around Michigan, doesn't know what lifts Silver Lake Sand Dunes is, it's kind of like, I would say it's kind of the Mad Max. It's a, just a bunch of sand <laughs> the <wild> dunes. West. <laughs> yeah. It's the Wild West. You could kind of do whatever you want. I've been on ATVs and you know four-wheel drive vehicles there. It's just such a blast, and you can kind of do whatever you want. Unfortunately, there's a lot of entries over there, as you can yeah, expect. Yeah. But it's such a but seeing your reboot buggy kind of rip around on the dunes, it's just such an incredible visual. How do you go about those problems, thinking about liminality and that kind of first approach? Because that's that is what you see when you first walk up to the vehicle. You first see it online. It's just it it takes you back and makes you ask questions. Yeah, when things um, don't meet your expectations when you approach them, your mind it starts to really flip-flop into decisions you've made or things that you think you know. And those triggers really stimulate somebody. It's disruptive, you know, right away when you see an object like that, especially in a sea, when you see an object that's new or not seen before. And that's a tricky gamble in my world because it's easy to make something nobody's seen before, but to make it slightly familiar is the kind of the hook that, draws people in and makes you keep approaching it so oh it's got wheels so it must be some sort of vehicle but maybe that's the only thing that you expected to see yeah yeah that's really interesting so those visual cues that give you enough relation to the object that somebody feels comfortable enough to say i think it fits in this category because i feel like that's what we do as designers and anybody else who's looking at an object for the first time you try to characterize it or, or relate it to something you know already that exists. So is that something you play with? Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the car is easy to talk about as an example, because I mean, there's a car I did, the consumer car, it's at the Peterson as well, that you can't see the wheels. Um, there's no door gaps, things that you like mirrors, very obvious things that make a car. This doesn't really have those. But you see a steering wheel and you see seats. So you're like, oh, it obviously is a car. But People want to hate it, and then they realize they sort of like it because it's it's new and sort of fun, and then they hate it some more, and then they like it more, and then it's like <laughs> it's weird. It's just going back and forth. Yeah, and and if you hit the scale and proportion right, there is a sense of quality and good about it. So that even hmm. screws you up even more. So because it's nice to look at as well, just as a sculptural form. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reboot buggy is a great example of that it's. I think it's it's sort of wonderful to look at because there's lots to see and the black sort of draws you in. You have to investigate like all the nuts and bolts and different pieces. But as a whole, like if you're not into big horsepower and flame-throwing, you know, V8s, like <laughs> it's not interesting, but it's still sort yeah. of beautiful in a wild way. I just like those dramatic parallels, I would say. It's black and white at the same time. It's tragically beautiful. Or like if you can make objects with those two contradictory elements, that's a fun place to be. 
when you're kind of playing with those boundaries of those, those, uh, opposing ideas, do you, do you also go through those instances where you look at something you're building and you're just, you know, kind of questioning the visual you're saying, ah, oh, that's, that doesn't look great. And then you fall in love with it again. And then it, you kind of like flip flop between those experiences, just as somebody who's looking at it for the first time, might once you've completed it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's as mind bending as it is when it's done, you know, as a process. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I try to hold things really hard and true to what the thought was. So let's say, you know, you wanted something red and just keep that red the whole time, even though it's probably not working. And then when you know that it's finally failing because obviously it doesn't work and it's just terrible looking, then you just back up just like a little bit, but you need Mm -hmm. to find that point to where it, it falls apart. And that's, that's the, just, it's a really narrow sliver of where it might work still. (laughs) And I used might as a pretty, (laughs) it's all capital. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So for you, as you're, kicking off a design project because there's a lot of industrial designers who are listening in who, you know, they're, they're developing products and, and there's a specific process. Here's how you go about a project and, and developing something out and what, what we can kind of glean from your process in particular. I, I'd like to say I do the same thing every time for everything, <laughs> but it's not, yeah. <laughs> you know, A plus B right. then you have C, you know, I really just sort of, think about things for a while actually like if i get a design brief or want to push on a project i for weeks i'll just kind of just think about it try to learn as much as i can and then kind of unlearn those things and um Hmm. i mean i go right to like this is not good for students and it's not a good practice i don't think for a lot of people but i kind of just shoot for the stars and just draw out what i think it should be right away And it just kind of let it come without, you know, interfering or thinking I should wait before I know a certain size of something or because when we build in the schematics, I think it just clouds our minds with too much information that we can't handle. So I I easily can ignore that stuff, shoot for like Mm. the general essence. And that goes back to the liminal um, side of things. Like when you see this thing from a distance, like that's that's what I want to get at right away. And then I sort of shoot for that. I'm not usually right, but I want to go as far as I can and see when that isn't working. And then I back off and then create kind of what it should be. I hope that makes sense in the least (laughs) or just a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, I know that's kind of the first step is a lot of people will just put up um, ideas right off the bat. It's like, let's just get those off the table just so like and out of our heads just so we can put them somewhere and say, yes, they've been documented and, and kind of yeah, put it up and say, yes, it's ready. You know, there's something there. The difference is I don't document that stuff. I'll actually go prototype one of those stupid ideas <laughs> and go all the way with it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, maybe, so, you, so you go right into physic, the physical. Yeah. I think that, you know, oftentimes when we do like these boards of like, oh, what if it were, you know, this and made out of, you know, cloud dust and unicorns if you don't if you even thought that there's something valid to it so i want to go all the way with that thought and see if there's still something there because easy to dismiss things right away but there was a little bit of something that was kind of magical about it so you know very few designs are the same thought that you had from the get-go mm-hmm 
Um, and some of those thoughts are the simplest, purest forms and, and, and ideas that should be the solution. We, we complicate the world too often. And um, I like to think I'm a minimalist, but I'm only a minimalist because I'm trying to get at the the simplest, straightforward example of what it is. I guess that's the definition of it, but some of those right. wild thoughts could be those minimal thoughts from the beginning. Right. You're trying to distill it down to, to the most basic. What's the, what's, what's really exciting about the concept you're coming up with. I mean, at the end of the day, there's some, there's some nuance there that's, that's different than what's out there already. And I think yeah, that's what's exciting. I don't want to lose that, you know, so I push really hard to keep those in there, even though they might not ever be working. Um, mm-hmm. I'll often dual path to th- things as well. So if I'm doing a, a chair, for instance, I'll do like three at once that are all very, very different under the same brief. Mm-hmm. I think that helps me know what doesn't work, what does work, and then what could work. Yeah. And I'm not saying the one that could work is the one that we produce either. <laughs> but <laughs> Right. Yeah. So with that goal in mind, what kind of questions would you ask or, or think about as a designer when you're entering into a project? Yeah, like what's desirable? You know, what do you aspire to would be kind of the first. And, you know, even given a questionnaire, somebody's like, oh, I just want to be in my home office or I want to be in a corner office with windows. Or So if you can like tap into fulfilling those desires somehow with cues, it, you know, it's, it's tricky for, it's very individual. So to have a, a universal, you know, want or desire is, is pretty hard, but I think scale and proportion is universal. So make things that are pretty inviting and conversely, if they're not pretty or inviting, when you get in there, it better be <laughs> you know, so yeah. from an exterior. And I, I do play with that kind of stuff. Um, you know, because it, it is more intriguing, I guess, or in, in curious. If you can get somebody curious about an object, that's really interesting. And then maybe shift their perspective once they're there from curiosity to like knowledge. I like to say that objects should spark curiosity and raise questions, but then answer them really quickly. Like, oh, what is that? Mm. Oh, it's a chair. Okay. You know, like if you can, if that quick curiosity and quick answer happens almost simultaneously that's that's pretty interesting space to be in i love that that's a that's really good thing to think about i think when you're developing out a design or sketching or just having that question at back of your mind and, and trying not to do something that is expected or might already be comfortable to somebody when they first walk up to it Yeah, but if it doesn't answer it really quickly, like nanoseconds, you know, it's a fail. But there is something like clever or trick when somebody figures out, quote unquote, how to do something with an object, even though it's pretty intuitive and pretty easy. They feel a bit of ownership over it, like they've they've solved the problem. It's a lot of brands do certain little tricks just to make sure that they've got like a brand following and like you're maybe cooler or part of the club than other people. It's like some car brands have the hood latch in other areas. The key will be on the wrong side or in in a weird position. You know, just little quirks like that, that if you're part of that sort of brand or subculture, you get it and other people don't, even though it's really simple, but you feel like you're, you're part of that tribe a little bit more. 
Right. And that, that tribe mentality goes way back into our minds through generations that we sort of adhere to. Do you think that people are very open when they're walking up to new experience? I mean, is that your experience in the past when people walk up to your products? I mean, (laughs) are they open to that kind of change? They are open. They're open if it's in front of them physically. If it's online, they're less open. (laughs) And Hmm. I don't know if (laughs) online you can just literally read their minds because they write out whatever they want to say. But I think yeah. you have to interact with something. If it's a physical object, a photo just doesn't cut it, you know. It can be fake or, or skew the the view or skew the notion of the product. To hold an iPhone is very different than just seeing it on the screen. Mm-hmm. Once you see it in real life, the proportion usually changes too. It's Yeah, yeah. You, know, you expect a certain size or something to be a certain shape, and then when you see it in person, I don't know, I never going through and having conversations about new vehicle launches, like at the end of the day, it's always like, Oh, I got to see it in person to really judge. It. <laughs> yeah, I think it's exactly. very true. Yeah. That's, I try not to render much in my studio just because it, you can just fake all of that stuff even further. Do you, do you think full size is, is critical at that point too? Or are you still doing scale models as well? Um, I try to do full size um, whenever I can. And it's 99% of the time, even though it could be cardboard and foam core, you just have to have it. And the scale models just help from, you know, all sorts of different areas. Mm. But I haven't worked on things that I couldn't make full size yet. You know, I haven't built a hundred foot yacht, you know, or something like that. (laughs) But I have worked on boats, So I do scale interior mock-ups or helm mock-ups in full scale, the touch points that, you know, you're going to actually be touching. Mm-hmm. And all of those should be in a scale that you could mock those up physically. Otherwise, you're just lazy, I think. Yeah. Like, How do you know when the transition is correct or you haven't pushed things too far? Or is that a space where you're not necessarily concerned about? And then do you have people come in and, and kind of see what their reactions are and judge if you haven't pushed it far enough? Or like, kind of how do you balance that out? As far as eyes on the work, you know, I, I'm in a project right now and I'm showing them these digital models and one of them is completely ridiculous, but I'm, I'm just in love with it and the client can't stand it. So I Hmm. do my diligence and do, you know, five examples. And this is the one you probably like. And I'm saying this out loud to them. Like you'll probably like this one because of these reasons, this one, this other one is the one that you should do for these reasons. And it meets all of your expectations. But this other one, I'm just super in love with. I can't, get out of my head. And I think that you should continue with this process with this piece. And they're just like, there's no way, you know? (laughs) So, (laughs) but every time we meet, I bring it up to them again and I don't expect them to do it. Um, and it would be a terrible idea from a business standpoint, but what we're finding is those nuances are now filtering into the other pieces almost to the point where it's the same piece. It's got the same attributes or adjectives you would list out if you saw it on those other pieces that didn't have it in the beginning. So I'm really cautious to throw away things that are just stupid, you know, or just Mm. won't work because there's something about them that, you know, still grabs your attention. And, but you have to, even with clients, you have to be willing to show work that isn't good 
and they they may not like over and over again. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that takes years of um, it's not thick skin. It's just a disregard for personal benefit, I guess. Yeah. So so how would you go about? selling or pitching an idea like that, that it, it's got the passion built in that you feel strongly about the design. What, what would be your recommendations for somebody yeah. who wants to sell that into a client that might be a little bit more conservative, for instance? Yeah, that passion and enthusiasm doesn't mean it's crazy or outrageous. You just have to kind of shift your maybe perspective and focus on, you know, if you're talking about two things and one you're throwing love and endorsements over. And the other one is just like, well, it just works great. Everything seems to work and it's pretty, but you know, it's kind of a who cares product. Just changing the way you're talking about things helps Hmm. because the pieces that I show and that you are probably familiar with only cost me money. Nobody's paying me to do any of that stuff. Right. (laughs) Nobody would buy it either. So it's technically not even worth doing, but it, it keeps me going for everything, I guess. And those influences filter into everyday objects that maybe go unnoticed, but they're quite brilliant in their own right. You know, going back to liminality, I'm wondering if also the presentation, because you, you talked about having that passion and whatever you're presenting, you should have some level of, of love and passion for. Do you have very specific ways of presenting or are these, you know, are you like rolling a physical mock-up into the room and that helps inspire those around you and those <laughs> clients to kind of move in that direction? Or is it, you know, you, you said you don't use the rendering side of things too much. What's that presentation like? And, and does that help influence the acceptance of your designs and concepts? Yeah, that's, that's really hard. I mean, it's like a tricky dance, you know, with especially clients that you don't know or new clients. But each time I try to tell a huge story with this from a to Z, like all the ins and outs. So I don't just throw a, you know, object right in front of them and say, here you go. This is so amazing. You know, what do you think? It's definitely, um, a slow build in conversation. I won't usually show things for a long time, but I, I like to make posters like 24 by 36 inch posters that I look pin up on the wall and Mm. they're drawings of, I can't remember. <laughs> Some of them are just so stupid in retrospect, but <laughs> it, it's different talking to designers and then talking to non-designers, I guess. Yeah. So I try to build up this story about why these shapes and little tiny nuances are important in our everyday lives and each detail matters, just like the space between matters, like going all the way outside the object, even the space between the spaces work and matter hmm. yeah i have yeah, fun with the posters a lot i mean i it would maybe we can share these somehow i did one um of just these <laughs> light bars on a ceiling grid like a big box store yeah you know and, and why that was interesting to look at you know and that poster became a fixture for herman miller like a, a lamp that was created for a systems product so a systems product without barriers but the grid was laid out by these lamps in succession throughout the space. So there was like a grid. Mm. So my, my thought was you still want to know where you are in the, in the world. Like you still want a sense of place. So working without walls and without barrier is fine. But at the end of the day, you want to know your address. Um, and these were those markers to find that, you know, subconsciously. Mm. 
uh, it's kind of the familiar. Yeah, totally. In a way. Yep. Yeah, that same project, that same project was great because we were having some cost problems and it was just too expensive to get this light I wanted in these these lamps. So they're mm-hmm. about to kill this thing. I'm like, you know, I don't it doesn't even matter if these things light up. And they're like, Well, what do you mean? It's a lamp. It's not a lamp, it's it's a sense of mm-hmm. definition in space. <laughs> and right. So you're proposing just metal rods in the air. I'm like, that's fine, you know. So <laughs> some of them it meant something different. Yeah. Some of them different. Yeah, some of them don't light and some of them do, but most of them don't. <laughs> which is pretty great. Wow. <laughs> That's a good way to reframe it too. When you step back, the creation that you made, what does it actually represent? And for that case, it wasn't necessarily that it was creating light. It was creating a sense of comfort and placement yeah, in a space. Yeah. I mean, how many objects do you have in your personal space that don't do what they were designed or bought for? You know, like a chair you never mm-hmm. sit in, but it's a you need a you needed one there because you had space, or you know, <laughs> whatever piece of furniture. Right. So these objects we surround ourselves and aren't doing what they were supposed to do, but they're doing exactly what they should be doing. It's filling a, a space, which is kind of that idea of liminality as well, because it's filling, it's that time in between or that in between space and thinking about that in the physical realm as well. Yeah. Yeah. A hallway in a, in a, in a space really doesn't need anything except the space to walk through, but we fill it with other things to give us, you know, other emotions as we pass through it. I know this is kind of a, a very lofty question, but I like to ask guests on the show kind of what they see coming down the road. And because you do play in this space of transitions and, and thinking about form factor, I'm curious where you see the, the future of design aesthetic. Just as far as like the trends moving forward, I try to look at those first. I feel like we're pushing more toward the unknown and more towards space kind of in the 50s when we started doing space race things. Um, you know, cars got bigger fins and, mm-hmm. you know, jets for taillights and things like that. I feel like we've been so um, minimized and we're just we're like reaching for like a sense of place and ownership so hard that and everything's obtainable now. So you can go, you know, real homey vibe or really plush vibe or futuristic or, or modern. All those things are like obtainable. But I feel like mm-hmm. none of them have really pushed towards the unimaginable. So new materials that are actually like really groundbreaking, I think will be interesting in the near future. You know, forms that defy gravity, so to speak, because of those materials that we can create. Hmm. And everything's so vibrant and just a, trying to get your attention right now. To have design that is downplayed and more minimal is a little tricky. Yeah. So I feel like we grab whatever trend is, you know, sort of fashionable and then carry that through product design. And that's not where product designers should be. I think we, we need to have a little bit less time stamped on our work and we've been very fashionized or as an industry as a whole as industrial designers. So I'm, I'm trying to still create products that maybe don't tap into like the timeliness of it Hmm. and push towards things that, either are unknown from the time because they haven't existed or, you know, you can, you can see them. You're not sure when they were made, so to speak. Hmm. I, I can't tell if I'm actually trendy or I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I should be mad at myself or encouraged by my own work. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I don't want to start a trend either, you know, 
Because then I think it's like, then I'm just doing that. I just want to be outside of trend, you know. That's hard to do with clients because they, they, I mean, it's like, holy cow. You know, the 80s are real in right now. We got to get thick tubes and, you know, I mean, it's very direct. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm curious on why they're asking for that and, you know, what social triggers are leaning towards that or not that particular, but just the questions that they're raising and, and the things that they're looking for. And they're not that dissimilar now than they were 10 or 20 years ago. They just want new, first of all, and exciting and to sell. So, Right. So do you have a call for designers in general when they're working on the development of a, the next product at, at their company? What would be your call to designers putting pen to paper? Yeah, call to designers, you know, just enjoy what you're doing and try to not compromise like blow their minds with the compromise, I guess. Yeah. So even the compromise should be incredible. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, like, I, you know, me too products or staple products, you know, just to fill a, a box in a catalog or something doesn't have to just be that they can be outstanding in their own right. Yeah. I feel like as designers too, we, I feel like we also need that outlet or a space where we can do that design work that pushes the boundaries and allows us to explore a bit so that we're even better off for, for the client. So when you spend a lot of time working for a client, you start to get into that space where you're really thinking about those constraints or, you know, how is it going to be manufactured? Uh, is the supplier able to create that? So those kind of questions are constantly going through the head. And, you know, I wonder if that outlet is also really critical to the design process in general is to have that outlet for designers to really express and find their own style and find that design aesthetic that makes them different and unique. Yeah. I mean, designing within that constraint and criteria is, I think, really powerful. You know, I, I like to just explore that and like use it up. So if I know they do sheet metal, like I'm going to know everything on that process and make that sort of surprise them with how interesting we got that. Yeah. Like I said on the phone with you earlier, like I'll give myself my own brief. If I got this brief across my desk, like that's the one I want to work on. And that gives me the freedom to sort of explore and, and do some of the work that I really want to be trying. So create your own client, so to speak. And lots of people have done this over the years and, to me, it really helps me sort of spread my wings and just really go for something because you won't be asked to do something like that ever with a client or a work situation. So if you have the excuse like, well, I never get these cool projects, you know, I wish I had projects like this. Don't say that kind of stuff. Create those own projects for yourself and then do them on the outside or do them yeah. internally. Like if you work for a shoe brand and you know, well, I never get to do boots because, you know, there's other boots. Like, well, do a boot project. Like, yeah. give yourself freedom to do that. Yeah, explore and then see if that informs the designs you're creating on yeah. the day-to-day. -day. Yeah, you'll always learn something. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I feel like that's a, a good way to find your, your own voice. I personally am still searching for my aesthetic i feel like i think that's <laughs> yeah, me too so I, I said that and as soon as i said it, i'm like i should backpedal that a little bit <laughs> yeah it's but i feel like and it's important and something that you can't do it if you know you're focused solely on the production work and you haven't had that time to also explore your own personal style 
Yeah. But because then those, that informs it. Yeah. Some of those style or personal styles could be a word like it's thoughtful or it's intuitive or, I mean, it doesn't have to be like roundy or, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because those will shift as you change jobs too, you know. I can't apply my hard-edged Mad Max style of vehicles to like baby high chairs. You know, it just doesn't relate sometimes, but it's in there a little bit. Yeah. I appreciate you, you know, working us through that. Is there anything that you're pitching right now that you're working on and that you're doing? Anything you'd like to, to plug? Oh, man. I mean, it's funny. I'm in a liminal space right now. You know, there, there are no plugs. <laughs> We've, you know, the, the industry has come to a, in my industry, as a futurist, as a three to five years out type person, you know, the future is pretty unknown right now. So there's a lot of scrambling. So the plug is, you know, try to find your way in the world, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> no personal plug, yeah. just a plug for everybody. Just like stay calm. You know, this, we've been around for a long time, you know, and this is a, a small window in our humanity, you know, so to hang in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Keep calm, carry on. Yeah. Um, it won't be the same. I'll say that, you know, it's, again, we've left a space and we're moving to a new one. And so right now we're just in this sort of reaching and, and thinking about how we might arrive, but we have a mm -hmm. great opportunity to create that as well as designers, you know, create the future you want, design yeah. that and, because the other the other creatives people or people in charge are not very creative <laughs> and it's frightening the level of the lack of creativity involved in the world stage mm, yeah we're the we're the ones responsible for that in some in some degree yeah yeah well thank you joe i appreciate your time today and taking us through this journey and uh, i've definitely taken some really good insight away and will be, uh, like I said, working on my aesthetic. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Good. Uh, me too. So, <laughs> Well, I guess we all will. It's uh, forever changing and adapting. Thanks again, Joe. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks. Talk soon. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this chat with Joey. If you want to check out more of his work, you can jump on jreuter.com, J-R-U-I-T-E-R.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like and subscribe. You can also jump on our Instagram at Explodivy Podcast for more tips, insights, and updates. See you next time.